Well, hey, and thanks for joining us for Ridge Church Online. My name is Dan. I'm one of our pastors here at Ridge Church, and it's a joy to be with you wherever you're joining us from, whenever you're joining us from, whether you're watching live, online, on YouTube, or you're listening back on podcasts or whatever it may be. Uh, It's good to be together. And this week, we are continuing on in our series 64 praying the way that Jesus taught us to pray. We have our final week as we've wrapped up the prayer to look at some of the practicalities of what it looks like to prayer. But even from home, would you right now with me join as we pray the Lord's Prayer together? Here's what it says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. And so this week, as I mentioned, we are in our final week of this series. And if you've been following along at all, you know we've actually walked all the way through the Lord's Prayer, line by line and word by word. All 64 words of the prayer we've taken time to look at. Over the last eight weeks, we've looked line by line and word by word at this prayer that Jesus gave his disciples when they asked him to teach them to pray. We've learned what it means to pray to our Father, that we pray to a Father, that we pray to our Father communally, that prayer is something we participate in as individuals and as a community. We've looked at what it looks like for God's name to be hallowed, for him to be glorified, for him to be given the glory and the honor that he is God is due. We've considered what it means for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, how that begins with us, begins with our hearts, begins with the kingdom seats in our own lives, but expands far beyond that to our neighborhoods, to our city, to our nation, and beyond. We've considered what it looks like for God to provide for us our daily bread, that that each day we can know, we can trust that our God is a good God who cares for us and our needs. We've looked at forgiveness, at reconciliation, at, at what it means for us to be forgiven and also to forgive others, that that is the mark of the Christian life, is, is a love for others that leads to reconciliation, that our temptations, that our struggles, that our sins, that any evil we may face, any spiritual warfare we may enter into, whether it's um, in an intense way or in a very normal way in the rhythms and just normal stuff of our life, those are the places where Jesus has already claimed victory. We know and we believe that this is the case. And finally, we've looked at how all this is possible. And that's in the context of who God is, what God has done, and what God is like, that it's His whose is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. We see in this whole prayer all of what it looks like, the essence of what it means to commune with and know the God who loves us. And as we've learned these things week after week, all with the hope and desire that you as individuals and we as Ridge Church, or however, whatever community you are a part of, would be able to be a people that is marked by prayer. Because imagine what might occur in our families. Imagine what might occur in our church. Imagine what might occur in Maple Ridge or whatever city it is that you live in and are listening to this from. Imagine what would happen there if prayer was not something we used to start and end meetings. 
If prayer was not just something that we used to make sure we did the Christian thing before we ate a meal, if prayer was more than how we transitioned from one element of a service into the next, what if prayer was not just the activity, not just the thing we did, not just one thing about what it means to be a Christian, what if prayer was the foundation by which our relationship with God motivated everything that we did as individuals and as a community? I believe we'd see the very things we've been talking about these last few months. We'd see what the kingdom looks like. We'd see what God's will is for our city and our um, community. We'd see provision. We'd see God do amazing, powerful things. But if we're honest, just like Jesus' disciples were, even though we all have a desire to pray, we still have to ask just like they did. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Why? Because whether or not prayer is a natural desire for us, it's not usually a natural practice. Remember the first summer I served at a Bible camp, a camp called Gardam Lake Bible Camp. Many of our students and high schoolers or some of our young adults or maybe some of you have volunteered at different Bible camps around the area uh, like Quanos that we're deeply connected with or many of the other awesome camps in this region. And you will know that most camps, most staffs have some form of staff devotional time. Uh, an invitation or a request or a discipline for those staff to partake in that before a morning staff meeting, whatever it may be, that, that you're meant to go to read your Bible, to spend time in prayer, to be with God. And that's a really good thing. But I remember being 16 years old, and it was my first summer cabin leading, and I remember going to one of my first staff meetings, and relatively new Christian, new to becoming like a real disciple of Jesus, trying to follow him, trying to work that out in my life, all these kind of things. And I remember at our staff meeting, the director at one point saying, hey, today we want to give you guys some extra space to go pray. And so you've got the next 45 minutes before breakfast. Uh, The kids will be up and they'll meet you there. Go spread out, take some time and pray. And and I remember going and sitting on this bench and everyone spread out and and I could kind of look around and see everyone. They had their Bibles, they had their journals and and everyone's heads were bowed and, and everybody looked like they were doing this really spiritual activity. And I remember sitting on a bench and after about five minutes, I didn't really know what to do with myself. I kind of prayed for everything I could think of. I had prayed for energy. I had prayed for the campers in my cabin. I had prayed for the camp. I had prayed for like, my friends and my family and, and some general stuff that I, I thought I should pray for, but, but I didn't really know like, what to do. 45 minutes to pray. I, I mean, I'm, I'm busy and distracted after five minutes. And, and that's the desire, isn't it? That, that's the desire is we want to be able to pray. We want to be able to be in connection and communion with Jesus. But even if we desire it, it doesn't always feel very natural. And what we don't want to do with this sermon series is toss you into a position like that. It's nobody's fault, but sometimes we talk all the time about what prayer is meant to be and how it should operate and here's what it looks like and this, that, and the other thing. But, but what we might miss and what we don't want to miss as a part of this series is that you would walk away from these last number of months looking at the Lord's Prayer and know a bunch of information about prayer but not actually have it change your prayer life. Because that's our desire, that's our hope, that you as an individual would have a prayer life where you are actually able to experience and know the voice of God in your life. Because that's what the Bible's desire is for us. Paul talks about it, right? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those, I believe, are all a result of a life that is marked by prayer. 
And we want that, we desire that, but if we don't know where to begin, then we won't ever really do it, will we? We might desire it, we might hope for it, we might wish we did it, we might pretend like we do it, but at our core we know we have no real devotional life to speak of. But I want you to listen to the offer of Jesus and Matthew chapter 11. And and for this verse, I want to read from Eugene Peterson's beautiful paraphrase of these words of Christ. Here is Jesus' invitation to you about what prayer and communion with him can look like. Here is what Jesus says. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burnt out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and recover your life. I will show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Come and learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Man, doesn't that sound beautiful? Don't you want that for your life? Like whether you're a new Christian or an old Christian or you pray all the time or you don't have any prayer life to speak of right now, doesn't that sound amazing? Are you tired? Are you burnt out? Are you just exhausted by everything going on in the world? What would it be like to take a real rest? But we have to be honest. This picture of a life marked by prayer sounds great, but if you've ever woken up early in the morning and tried to pray, you know there is a whole number of things that get in the way of building this kind of a life, isn't there? Things that make it this kind of a statement, this kind of an invitation from Jesus seem more like lofty optimism than a reality that we can cling to. I think of the journey from my bed to the spot in my pati- on my patio where I often sit and pray with my morning coffee. I think of all the obstacles just in the 15 or so feet between those two places, between me and a life marked by prayer. First of all, my pillow. I I don't know what it is, but I'm telling you right now, my bed in the moment or 10 or 15 or hour after I wake up in the morning is infinitely more comfortable than any other time in the day, particularly at night when I'm trying to go to bed. My alarm has an incredible feature that yours probably does too, that if I hit a button right, it just moves on down the line for 10 more minutes. My wife loves it when I hit that button eight or nine times a morning. And then even if I get out of my bedroom, I walk past and I see the TV and I know what that TV has. It's got all the sports highlights that I could ever want to watch. It's got Netflix, it's got the news to keep me updated about what's going on in the world. And I'm tired, it would be so easy to just flick on the TV and put something on and I'll get ready and do that kind of thing and just relax because I'm tired and I was up late and it was a busy day yesterday. And and, and even if I get past the TV, well, then I see the pile of laundry that was washed a few days ago but has been sitting in the basket unfolded ever since then, just one more hour before I have time and energy to fold it. And I think, well, that should probably get done first. Or even if I make it past that, I see the dishes last night from dinner that I said, oh, I'll do that later, no problem, I just don't have energy right now. There's all these things that seem to get in the way. And even when I, in the night before, decide I want to get up early, I want to pray, there's all these obstacles that seem to be in my way. And I don't know what it looks like for you. 
I, I don't know what the journey is from whether it's your bed in the morning or, or from the busyness of your day or as you settle down in the evening, what that journey looks like and what those obstacles are between you and a life of prayer. But I think we all know that struggle. Richard Foster describes this so well in his book on prayer when he says, today we yearn for prayer and we hide from prayer. We we are attracted to it, but we're also repelled by it. As I mentioned last week, the reality is that most people, atheist, Christian, any religion, have a desire to pray. Whether it's in the midst of panic or strife or sickness or struggle, there's a desire to ask God to help. Or whether it's in the midst of seeing a beautiful sunset or getting to the end of the hike and seeing the view where you just want to give praise to something that deserves that praise. And prayer is so natural, right? It's so good for our souls. We, we want it. Any amount of time following Jesus, we, we know it's something we ought to do. We, we desire to want to do it. I want to want to pray, as it were. It's such a gift. It allows us to come to rest in God. So how come it seems so hard and unnatural? How come it's so much of a battle to get myself seated down, my mind free of distractions and focused on Jesus? And how do we build a habit of prayer that isn't just religious duty? How do we build a time of communion with Jesus on a regular basis every day, multiple times a day if possible? where it's not just ticking off a to-do list. It's not just saying, I did the right Christian thing today, but it's a genuine relationship with God. Well, I think it's because everyday normal things that I mentioned and more. But beyond that, we live in a culture where we've been taught and given an idea that there are so many things that matter so much more than our relationship with God. See, the reality is, whether you like it or not, the culture that you live in shapes you. The city of Maple Ridge shapes you. The country of Canada shapes you. The kind of people you follow on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or whatever it may be, they shape you. I realize this all the time now that I've lived here in Maple Ridge for three years. When I go back and visit family and friends in Salmon Arm, I realize how I've changed, how my life moves a little bit faster since moving to the city when I go back, I'm like, man, everybody's moving so slow. Everybody seems so relaxed. Why are they, why are they going so slow? Or, or I think about the, the culture out there of different things and, and all these different ways that that's small town life and this is a little bit more of a bigger city. But then I go downtown to Vancouver. Jaleesa and I were down last weekend and there was a huge festival going on and there's people everywhere and everyone's moving and it's intense and everyone's loud and it's crazy. And, and I realized that I am shaped by the culture of the place that I live in, but beyond that, we're shaped by so many different things. French philosopher Michel Foucault described this phenomenon as the normalization of the individual, but I love James K. Smith's description of it. He calls it cultural liturgies. What are the practices? What are the traditions? What are the things in the place we live, in the culture that we live in, whereby intentionally or unintentionally, they shape us? We think about these, culture and these cultures and how they shape us. Think about the media. Think about what Netflix is doing to shape you. Think about the marketing, the number of ads you get on all sorts of social media, the number of billboards you see, what it tells you about what it means to live a good 
life, any ad you see on TV that shows you a picture of what life is meant to look like. It gives you a picture of what is good, what is valuable, the economic realities that we live in, the the culture's values of sexuality and the relationships that we have, what does a healthy family look like, what does it mean to be who you are, where does someone find their identity, is it from their work or is it from their family, is it from their sexual identity, where do we find that? Our culture tells us these things and ultimately in the culture that we live in, I believe that the greatest cultural marker is a value of what Carl Truman calls in his book, the rise and triumph of the modern self. The, the most important thing in the world is me. The, the most important thing in the world is how I have become who I'm meant to be. Am I becoming the, the best version of me? Am I getting all that I want out of life? Am I finding all the joy and all the happiness and all that I desire? Am I living out my dreams. And, and we see this cultural liturgy that says that, that self is king or queen. Whatever you dream about, that's what you should chase. But Carl Truman in his book points this out. Because we as Christians know that these things are not true. We know there's a deeper truth. We know there is idols in the world. That's what we talked about last week that, that pull our attention, pull our focus away from Jesus. But listen to what Carl Truman says in his book On the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self about how we as Christians respond. He says, Every age has its darkness and its dangers. The task of the Christian is not to whine about the moment in which he or she lives but to understand its problems and respond appropriately to them. My friends, your call in life is not to whine about the culture. We can see the culture for what it is. We can see the idols. We can see the lies. We can see hurt and breakdown and sin and brokenness in our world. See it. Do not whine about it. It is not our call as followers of Jesus. What is our call? Paul tells us in Romans 12 too when he writes, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and pleasing and perfect to Him. This is the call of following Jesus in our age. Not to sit around and complain about the loss of Christian values and the collapse of morality, whether or not those things may be true in the country that we live in, in a post-Christian culture, whether or not those things are true. Our job as followers of Jesus is not to sit around and complain. It is to reject the false narrative that we are victims of our culture and cling on to the reality that we have been invited to communion with the God of the universe who is bringing about His kingdom in our time right now. That the living God in the middle of the messy and broken world that we live in is doing something in our lives. Rich Velotis, a pastor in New York, made this observation about Jesus and how prayer in particular forms us. Here's what he says. If Jesus spent eight hours a day, every day, for three years with his disciples, he would have spent over 8,000 hours with them. If you're familiar, familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's work, you know that's nearing the 10,000 hour mark of what he would call mastery over a topic or a subject. But even after all that time, Velotis writes, they still had major gaps. Look at them, they're a mess. Judas is betraying Jesus. Peter can't get his stuff together. We've got people arguing over who gets to sit at the right hand of Jesus. Everybody flees when Jesus goes to the cross. 8,000 hours of discipleship. 
And there's still an absolute mess. And Velotis writes, one hour a week on Sunday will never change people. If you are depending on showing up here or listening to a podcast right now and that one hour a week of spiritual content, uh, of just downloading some information or looking for some encouragement, if you think that that is going to disciple you to follow Jesus, you are sorely mistaken. The, the episodes of Stranger Things are longer than one of our church services. There is so much culturally that is shaping and forming you without you realizing it. You cannot depend on an hour a week. This is why a daily rhythm of prayer and communion with God matters. This is why we've chosen to do a series about this. This is why we're saying we want our church to be a place where we are people who not only follow Jesus, who not only believe the right things, but who are formed by Jesus in the place of prayer. See, prayer is the best location for Romans 12.2 to actually happen, for us to be transformed, for our minds to be renewed, for us to understand what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect to Him. Prayer is the location where that happens. Psalm 46, famous verse, says this, Be still and know that I am God. It's a beautiful verse. It's a beautiful promise that we can cling on to to know that we can be still. That everything that's going on in our lives sits under the authority and sovereignty of our King. But think about the next verses in Psalm 46. Here's what it says. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. See, the invitation of Psalm 46 is to be still. But then it's to realize that the way in which God will be glorified, the way in which God will be exalted, the way in which God's kingdom comes and His will is done is by the way that we are able to be still with Him. Why? Because that's where we are formed. That's where we are renewed. That's where God transforms our minds and our hearts that we can enter back into community in a transformed way. And so a quick word today on how Jesus shows us this pattern in his own life, and then some very practical best practices and suggestions as we wrap up this series and head into a new one in the coming weeks. Here's what it says in Luke 5.16 about Jesus. But Jesus would often withdraw to lonely places and pray. Now that phrase, lonely places, you may have heard of us use it before, is, is this word, aremos. It's a word that means a number of different things. It's a word that means a lonely place. It's a word that can be used uh, as wilderness. It, it can be the quiet place or the desolate place. It's all over the Gospels, usually in reference to Jesus and where He's headed after a busy day. In this text, it's translated to desolate or lonely place, but depending on your translation, it could be all these different things. And it's not a one-time thing. If you read the Gospel of Mark alone, it's got nine references to Jesus going to the lonely place. It's filled the Gospel narratives with a, a clear picture that this is part of Jesus' rhythm as, as He does His ministry. Before you write off this as coincidence, we see in the very beginning of Mark's Gospel that this pattern emerges immediately. Here's what it says about Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. An epic moment of initiation. 
the baptism of Jesus, the whole Trinity present, Father speaking, Son being baptized, Holy Spirit descending to initiate Him into ministry. This is the moment. Jesus has announced the kingdom has come. It's time to repent. The the kingdom of God has come near. Everything's ready. Here we go. It's about to get started. And what happens next? Well, verse 12, the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness, into the Aramos. And there He was in the Aramos for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And He was with the wild animals and angels ministered to Him. Now it's easy to look at this passage and think, oh man, what a brutal reality. Jesus is ready to go, but now he has to go face this battle. He has to go face, almost seems like a punishment. Why does he have to, you know, get all ready for ministry? Everything's ready to go. Everything's built up. They're ready to launch. We can do this awesome thing, all this kind of stuff. There's probably people there who've witnessed this baptism. Okay, this is the time to launch. This is the strategic moment. And yet Jesus goes out into the wilderness. But did you catch what it said? It said the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. The Spirit of God beckoned him to come out into the Aramos. What if this wasn't a punishment or a test, but was actually the place where Jesus would be most prepared to fight Satan? That, that Satan's lies would, would attack Jesus, would come at Jesus. You can read about them in Matthew chapter 4. But, but that Jesus was not weaker after 40 days of fasting and prayer in the desert, but was stronger was more attuned, was more ready to do the Father's work, to hear the Father's voice, to respond to the lies of the enemy with the truth of the Scriptures. Steadfast in his refusal to be shaped by anything other than God's work in his life. And if you read on in Mark chapter 1, you see a wilderness experience that Jesus has, and then he dives straight into ministry. He hops straight in. He has this marathon day. We see him recruit his first disciples, Simon and Andrew. We see him recruit his next set of disciples, James and John. So right away, he's got four people he's brought in to disciple to be a part of his crew. He starts preaching the synagogue. He does battle with a demon. He takes the unclean spirit out of a man. He goes to a dinner party with Simon's mom and gets to know the community that he's going to be a part of. It's as the whole city comes and Jesus, out of this ministry, out of this experience in the wilderness, just begins healing people. Right? It says he heals many people there. But look what it says immediately after this marathon epic run of a day. Mark 1, verse 35. Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark. Jesus departed and he went out to the desolate place, to the Aramos, and there he prayed. And it was Simon and those who were with him, they searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone's looking for you. Everyone's looking. What they're saying is, hey, we've got some momentum right now. We've got a movement on our hands. We've got something to take advantage of here. There's lots of people. They want to see you. They want to hear you. We can do something. We can set up a church. We can set up a... We can do something right here in this town. We're ready to go. And look at how Jesus responds. Let's go to the next town that I can preach there also. This is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. He doesn't stay where it's easy. No, he goes to the next place to do the next thing that God has called him to do. See, notice it wasn't any human or temptation or brokenness or running away from fear that Jesus goes into the wilderness, but rather the Spirit of God leads him there. Whether it's after his baptism for 40 days or after a busy day of ministry, 40 days of preparation, of being ready, of doing battle with the enemy, he comes, he does ministry for a day. What's Jesus' first response? Man, I gotta pray. I gotta have my quiet time. I gotta be alone with God. I need this time. 
See, the more intense Jesus' life and ministry becomes, the more often you see him move towards the lonely place, the desolate place. Why? To pray. Because that's the rhythm of grace that I think Jesus speaks about in Matthew 11. It's a move from solitude and silence, a place where we meet God as an individual in prayer, and then back to community, back to mission. It's this movement again and again. We see Jesus, if you read the Gospels, look at how He rotates. He does ministry. He teaches. He casts out demons. He, he does all these things that God has called Him to do. He spends time with His disciples. He, he's around all these people. And, and what's His response after that? He goes to be alone, to pray, to be with God. And then He enters back in. This is the rhythm of grace. Here's how Bonhoeffer describes this kind of rhythm, or rather warns us of what happens if we don't have a rhythm and if we value one over the other. He says, let him who cannot be alone beware of community. And let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Each by itself has profound perils and pitfalls. One who wants fellowship and community without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. But the one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. What's he saying there? All of us tend towards one or the other. All of us look at solitude and silence and go, oh, I'm, I'm an introvert. I like being alone. I don't really need other people. I don't need to be in a rich community. I don't need people to pray for me. I don't need to confess my sin. I just do that business with God alone. I listen to a podcast every once in a while. I'll show up to church once in a while. But, but really, I'm just going to follow Jesus and it's my thing. It's nobody else's business. And what Bonhoeffer and more importantly Jesus is saying is, is that's not how it works. But on the other side, some of us are like, oh, I love community and I love coming to events and I love being part of programs and I love doing these things. But when it's like, okay, what have you read in your Bible lately? Or, or what's your prayer life look like? It's like, oh, I don't know. I just wait for a program to do that for me. Well, I just listen to the sermons. It's somebody else's job to feed me spiritually. And what Bonhoeffer is saying is neither of those two things work. We need both together. A practice of stillness and silence and solitude in prayer to move us back into community and mission and all that God has called us to. When I think about this and a life marked by prayer, I think about one person in particular. It's my grandma, my grandma Marina. She recently passed away and she loved Jesus and so I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that she's present with him right now and I'm so happy for that. But one of the things I remember most about my grandma is when she would phone. And the first thing grandma wanted to talk about every time she called was what she had prayed about that morning. Here's what I was led to in the scriptures. Here's the, the verses I was praying. Here's what stuck out to me. Here's the psalm that I was singing this morning that God brought to my mind. Here's what I was thinking about for you or here's what I was thinking about for your brother. Here's what I was thinking about for this city or I was praying for your church or I was praying for your youth ministry. My grandma never came to our youth ministry and yet God brought it to her mind. She prayed for her. For it. She said, let me tell you about what God was speaking to me. Here's how I'm hearing God. Here's how I'm wondering, discerning what God is saying, what God is calling me to. My office, my drawers, if you look around my house or you look around my office, you will find dozens and dozens of handwritten letters from my grandma Marina filled, not just with encouragements, not just with some nice words, but with prayers written over me, over my wife Jalisa, over what God has called me to, that her life was marked by this. Prayer was her favorite thing to do. It was her favorite thing to talk about. It was what filled up her soul. 
She wanted to hear, what are you praying for? Where are you seeing God work? What are you discovering in your Bible? To be for, with Jesus for my grandma was a gift, not a duty. It was a joy, not some to-do list. And I wonder what would happen in the world if those of us who follow Jesus made that the norm and not the exception. If those of us who follow Jesus began to look at our times of prayer, our times of Bible reading, not as this painful thing we have to do and, oh man, I've got to get up early and I've got to do this thing and, oh, I'm trying to do it and it's, oh, it's not fun, it's brutal, but I, I guess I'm doing it, I'm trudging through and I'm gritting my teeth and I'm doing all these things, but rather we heard Jesus' invitation, are you tired? Yeah, there's a lot of us who are tired these days. Are you worn out? Yeah. There's a lot of us who are worn out these days. Are you burned out on religion? Man, there's some of you listening to this right now who are going, I am just so tired of trying to have it all together for God. Well, here's what Jesus says. He says, come to me. Get away with me and you can recover your life. I will show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, Jesus says. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Come and learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavier or fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. That is the invitation of Jesus to you. That is what prayer is meant to be. So with that said, what I want to leave you with as we close out this series is just a few very practical, very feet on the ground, real world sort of best practices we want to offer you to try. Maybe from this you get one or two things you want to try, you can throw out the rest, that's okay. But for those of you who are like me and you're like, okay, give me something that I can actually implement. Give me something that I can actually apply. Here's a few um, tips, here's a few kind of things that we think are really great practices as you begin a habit and a rhythm of prayer in your own life. First and foremost, this may seem obvious, but it's incredibly important. Begin with Scripture. Have Scripture be a thing that marks your prayer life. Hebrews chapter 4 says this, The Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The, the Bible, we believe at Ridge Church, is God's word to us. That through a number of different authors, through years and years of the Holy Spirit speaking through people, that what we have, that this book is not like any other book. This book is not just filled with rules and regulations and some information and some history and some nice ideas about God. That this book is living and active. That it is the power to transform our lives and that should be deeply connected to how we pray. Eugene Peterson, writing about how God has spoken through the scripture and how that plays out in our prayers, writes this. Prayers train us in conversation with the God who seeks us out. The God who speaks and therefore we must answer. That is the picture of what prayer is. God has spoken. This is what the Bible is. The speaking, the word of God to us that matters not just for information, not just for arguments, not just for knowing more than the next person, but for meeting God in communion. This is how primarily God speaks to us and how we can enter into a conversation with Him. If prayer is a conversation with God, Scripture is the best conversation starter. It's the most clear picture we have of who God is, of what He is like, of what He has done, and we believe that God speaks to us through His written Word. If you don't know where to start, that's okay. Start in the Psalms. 
It's the Bible's prayer book. It's 150 um, poems, songs, spiritual hymns, these things that have been written primarily by David from the Old Testament, but many others as well. It's where we see the totality of human experience. There's all sorts of emotions. There's anger, there's bitterness, there's I can't believe you're doing this, God. There's frustration, there's sadness, there's joy, there's excitement. There's all these things, all in the Psalms, all these things brought under the rule and reign of God. Many famous theologians across the years have recommended this practice. If you read five psalms a day, spend time meditating on those, each month you'll go through the entirety of the book of Psalms, the entirety of the range of human emotion that's contained there, all coming to the point where it says that God is God and He loves us. And so that might be one rhythm to try. If not that, I would encourage you to try the ancient Christian practice of the Lectio Divina. And before you're like, whoa, that's a weird word. What the heck are we talking about? That's strange. Don't worry. What it means in Latin is holy reading. And what it is, is is slowing down through Scripture. It's not trying to bite off as big a chunk as we can chew. It's it's slowing down and reading one or two or maybe three lines at a time and, and considering what it looks like. There's, there's kind of six movements to it. This is from 24-7 Prayer, which is a great organization. I'll speak to you in a minute. It's to read it's to read a passage. Just look at it. What does it say? It's to relish. Man, what does this mean? What does this mean for me? What, do I, what emotions does this bring up? for me? What is this calling out in my life? How is God speaking to me through this? It's reread it because the Bible sometimes can be confusing. And so we jump back in and we reread and we look for what is God saying through this? Then we respond. We say, okay, what is the response to this? What does this call me to do as a follower of Jesus? How does this call out my sin? How does this call me into who God's called me to be? And then we rest. We breathe and remember that God loves us. And then we resolve. How do I step out of this prayer? How do I step out of this practice ready to do whatever it is that God has called me to do? There's some great resources on Lectio Divina that I'll share with you in a minute. But the second best practice we would encourage you to do is find a pattern. You know, humans are built to see patterns. We're built to appreciate when things match. They look good together. They work good together. And so finding a pattern or finding a rhythm that works for you in prayer is a really important thing. Prayer is much more art than science. And so you have to find the things, the practices that work for you. Maybe a certain time of day is best. Maybe a certain um, way of doing prayer is best. Um, I mentioned last week two different styles. There's acts prayer, which is adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and then supplication to move in that order through prayer. Or the pray, praise, repent, ask, yield, where there's an extra step added on at the end where we yield and remember and rest in God. Some of you journal your prayers. I think that's an incredible practice. I've very rarely in my life been able to keep up a consistent habit of journaling my prayers, but for some of you, it helps to keep you not distracted, keep you focused, and be able to look back and see what has God done in my life. And for those of you who don't know where to start, here's what I would encourage you. Use the Lord's Prayer itself. Use line by line of the Lord's Prayer as your launch pad into prayer. Begin, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then spend some time praying, God, here's what I appreciate about your majesty. Here's where I see your power. Here's where I see your glory. And and when you're ready, move on. Your kingdom come and your will be done. God, I want to see your kingdom come in in my family. And I want to see your kingdom come in my life as I live out my days at work. Okay, okay, it's time to move on. Uh, God, I want to see your daily bread provided. Would you provide for my family? Would you provide for those that I love? Use the Lord's Prayer as a walkthrough 
Tim Keller in his book on prayer notes that um, if nothing else, walk through the Lord's Prayer and you'll find yourself with great, deep, healthy prayer times. All these different kind of things. Beyond finding a pattern, number three, we would encourage you to find your place. This one might seem obvious or unimportant, but I think it's incredibly important. Where is the place that you meet with God? We live in a world that is very busy and we are filled with technology and distractions and there's all this information coming at us from all angles all the time. I think it actually matters to have a place where we know that we meet with God. Maybe you're married and you have a favorite spot to go for a date with your spouse because that's the place where you connect. Well, I would encourage you, what does that place look like with Jesus? Maybe it's a chair. It doesn't have to be fancy. Maybe it's a spot on the couch where you just know you're going to fit right in. Maybe it's a spot on your patio. I know that's where mine is, looking out over the backyard, and there's a willow tree, and the birds are chirping, and I can see my wife's garden and see things grow each and every morning. That's my spot. Maybe it's a place that you walk, uh, a loop that you walk on each day, or, or maybe it's a spot in a coffee shop where you're able to, in the midst of all the noise, silence yourself before God, wherever that place is, it doesn't really matter. The, the point is that it's a place that you can find rest. It's a place that you can meet with God. A couple of notes I would say on it, though. Make it a place where you can find sol- silence and solitude. Our lives are busy, and, and there's lots of things that are calling for our attention. If you've got kids, a kid will come and interrupt your prayer time almost guaranteed. If you're working, you might have phones going off. You might have different things going off. People might need you. There might be people that you're responsible to care for that, that need you in that moment. But as best as you can, find a place where you cannot be distracted or pulled out of that silence of that prayer. Here's another thing I'd say. Don't bring your phone Don't bring your phone to your prayer time. As much as you mean well, as much as it's just to listen to worship music or just in case there's an emergency, you will end up scrolling Instagram or looking at whatever's on sale on Amazon. We're addicted to our phones. It's it's built into our culture. And so put your phone in a drawer, put it off to the side, or at the very least put it on silent so it won't go off while you're praying. Do whatever you can to eliminate distractions from that place and create a space, however small, to commune with God. Fourthly, slow down. Slow down. Pete Grieg, who wrote a book that I'll mention in a minute here on prayer, says this. He says, the best way to start praying is actually to stop praying, to pause. To as Psalm 46 puts it, be still. Put down your prayer list. Surrender your personal agenda. Stop talking at God long enough to focus on the wonder of who He actually is. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently before Him. Uh, One practice that's been recommended and you might want to try is try to have a space of silence before you enter into prayer. If you do have a phone or, or a little egg timer or whatever it may be, set a timer for three minutes and just try to sit in silence. Try to sit in silence. And trust that God loves you and knows you. Remove the distractions and the stresses in that time. Some people use breath prayer. I've used this in a number of different times where we breathe and we practice breathing. And, and on the in and out, we use a different prayer, right? The, the classic um, mercy prayer, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And just to sync up our breath with that to try and avoid distractions on the inhale and the exhale. Um, one practice that I have found really helpful is to go palms up and, and feel the weight, feel the pressure, feel the stress of all that's going on in your life, all that's going on in your world. Allow it to, to be there, but then to 
turn your palms down and release those things knowing that God has got them. To, to physically practice the, the letting go of the need to control my own life. Uh, another piece of slowing down is releasing your expectations. Not every prayer time will go exactly how we wish it went. Not every prayer time will feel as amazing as we wish it did. And finally, as an opportunity, if and where it's possible, try to go on a retreat. And maybe that's for a day to just go spend in the woods with a campfire where you just spend the day with God. Bring a journal, bring your Bible, spend time asking God, what are you doing in my life? Finally, what I would say is practice this in community. Bonhoeffer has the great quote about it, but we do need community. Um, The other week we were connecting our communities continuing to meet through the summer and we always share prayer requests. And at one point somebody said, hey, we can't just share prayer requests once a week. We need to share them on our uh, group chat on Messenger so that we can continue to see the prayer requests. We can continue to see the things to continue to pray for each other through the week, but then also to see where God has answered prayers. And so a few weeks ago, I had shared a prayer request. Here's what I'm dealing with. Here's what I'm struggling with. This is what's going on. And this summer, we're just hanging out. We're connecting. This week, we just had a barbecue and played board games. It was awesome. But, but someone in my community group, she leaned over and she said, hey, I, I just want to check, how are you doing with this thing that you requested prayer for a few weeks ago? Uh, I know that you're in the midst of this thing that you're now dealing with and you asked for prayer and and I just want to see, are you okay? How's it going? And there was this moment where I realized, man, I forgot to pray about this. But, But here I am in community, grateful that someone who cares about me has not only the love for me to pray for me, but the love to actually check in about that very thing. You can join one of our corporate prayer gatherings. We have a number that happen through the week. Two on Tuesday morning for men. One Wednesday in the middle of the day. Sunday morning before service, you can come and join us as we pray. Not just for the service, but for our church as a whole. And maybe for you, you go, it's busy, I can't fit that in, I can't get up. Maybe you are being asked by God to start a new one. To create a space where people gather to pray, whatever that may look like. Maybe jump into a different prayer time or, or ask a couple guys in your community group to start connecting or, or just checking in daily about how can we pray for one another. See, the best place to learn is on a team. This year I played soccer for the first time and I went and I decided I was going to get good at soccer by playing and practicing by myself. And so I went out to a field and I brought a ball. Here's the reality. There's not much I can really do to get better at soccer just kicking around in a field by myself. I might get in better shape. I might be able to, but I don't really know what I'm not good at. I'm not actually doing any drills. I'm not actually doing anything that's going to help me get better. But when I went to a practice and all of a sudden I'm surrounded by a team who all has different experience and who can speak in, here's what you can try, here's what you can do. That is where I actually grew as a soccer player. Here's what I would say to you today. Following Jesus is a team sport, which means our prayer can be the same. We can learn how to pray in the context of community. And as we wrap up, just a few resources we would recommend to you if you want the real practical, tell me what to do, tell me what to grab, tell me how I can continue in on this. A couple of books. First of all, uh, Prayer, Experiencing On Intimacy with God by Timothy Keller. You will have heard me quote this a number of times through this series, Jonathan, as well. It's a fantastic book that walks through what prayer is, why it matters, and how we can do it. 
Another specific to the Lord's Prayer, a couple specific to the Lord's Prayer. One would be 57 Words That Changed the World by Daryl Johnson. He looks at the Lord's Prayer in a slightly shorter version than we did, considering chapter by chapter, line by line, just the same as we have. It's a fantastic book. It's been a great reference point for this series. J.I. Packer, though, if you're not wanting a big 100, 150-200 page book, J.I. Packer has a beautiful little book called Praying the Lord's Prayer that's just small devotions on each line to help you to pray it. Or fourthly, and this is a great one that I've been reading recently that I think would be really, really helpful. You'll love this title if you're a super practical person. It's called How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People. Isn't that what so many of us want, right? I just want a a simple guide for normal people. I don't need a billion pages on theology prayer. I just want to learn how to pray. It's by Pete Grieg. He's one of the founders and leaders of the 24-7 prayer movement that is fantastic, fantastic stuff. I highly recommend this. I'm about halfway through the book right now, but it's been really, really helpful. Three other things outside of books that we would recommend to you. One, we talked about the Lectio Divina. I would encourage you to download what's called the Lectio 365 app. It's an app from prayer 24-7 um, that what it does is it walks you through. It's got a morning and an evening like the Novena that walks through that kind of scripture reading that each morning and each evening it walks you through. You can do it audio or you can do it reading. Um, of the Lectio Divina that focuses in on a passages, focuses in on a theme, focuses in on what God might be saying and guides you through. Uh, I find it really helpful. I use it once in a while um, for stretches and seasons of my life, uh, particularly in the evening. Um, It's a great way to end off the evening with prayer and examination of what God has done in your day. Secondly, we think you should join the Bible in a Year plan that our church has been doing. We've come back to this a few times. Um, Many of us here at Rich Church have been reading through the Bible together for a year. And even though we're not talking about it or doing a Bible study per se, we've been walking through it all the way. You can download the app and you can hop in with us, or we've got paper copies here at the church that lets you know what scripture to read each day so that you can slowly walk through the Bible and connect it to your prayer life. And finally, and maybe most helpfully, the 24-7 Prayer Tool Shed. It's uh, on a website called The Prayer Course. It's similar. It's from some of the same people that created the Alpha Course, if you're familiar with that. But beyond the course, which is a lot of videos and that kind of thing meant for small group contact, it's got something called The Prayer Tool Shed that you can find online. It's got 30 um, kind of documents that walk through a number of different things. Here's how to pray the Psalms. Here's a guide on how to pray for tragedy that's happening in the world. Here's a guide on how to do the Lectio Divina. Here's a guide on how to do a prayer meeting, to gather people together to pray. It's incredibly helpful. There's tons of content there. But at the end of the day, and as we wrap up this series, may you know that Jesus is inviting you right now to pray, to experience a life of prayer where God is not some far-off reality and where you can be aware of his presence every moment of every day, where your life is not formed by culture, but by the word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, and where you can receive Jesus' invitation to come away and get a real rest. And we give you these tools because we want them to be helpful. But as we close, I want to leave you with this quote from Henry Nouwen that is a little bit convicting to each one of us, I think. He says, The only way to pray is to pray. (laughs) And the way to pray well is to pray much. So as we wrap up this series, may I invite you to follow Jesus and experience a life marked by prayer. Let me pray for you as we close out this series. Dear God, thank you so much that you invite us to a life of prayer. That even right now, you as our Father listen to us, care for us, and are working in our lives. And so Jesus, we ask that you would help us to figure out what those rhythms are and what they look like. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would move 
and work in our lives even today. God, remove distractions, remove cultural idols, help us to have our eyes fixed on you. And Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that it's in prayer that you form us, that you shape us, and that you renew us. That we do not have to be conformed to the patterns of this world, but we can be transformed by how you renew our minds in the context of prayer. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for how you've spoken to us in your word and how you've invited us to speak to you and to hear you speak in the conversation that is prayer. We love you, Jesus, and we pray all these things in your precious name. Amen.